Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm betting that most people listening are familiar with the McMaster Innovation Park, or at least have heard about McMaster Innovation Park. And if you are even remotely, even if you're not, it's essentially, it's a series of buildings in a compressed area. It's along Longwood and on Frid Street a little bit and in, in the West Hamilton area that... As I understand it, my next guest will be able to probably explain it better. The, the concept here was to bring a whole bunch of people with a lot of brain power into a compressed area to share ideas, bounce off ideas, work with each other, and create stuff, really impressive, intelligent, bright stuff that you may not do if you were all spread out all over the place and didn't have interactions with each other. However, it seems that there have been some challenges in this. Now, we're not going to get into all the challenges, and I'll tell you why, because there are, there is a lawsuit, some of the things we can't really talk about right now, some of the things my next guest can't talk about. But I want to go back to the concept of the Innovation Park. Uh, Dave Carter is Executive Director of Innovation Factory. He joins us now. Dave, how are you today? Hey, how about yourself? I'm excellent, thank you. I want I want to get into this the the idea, the concept behind the innovation park. Am I sort of close to what this is? Let's just bring a lot of really brainy people together in a small area, and they will bounce stuff off each other, and bright things will pop out of that. Well, I'm there, so maybe I'm wrong that rule. <laughs> uh, I think you've got it partly right. I think it's it's about a bunch of things. It's about connecting certainly the university and some um, areas of research at the university that should be exposed to the you know to the business world at large i think it's a place for startups so it's really a whole bunch of things it's not just sort of a think tank and we all just sort of hang out and and you know bang out lofty ideas it's really the the primary thing is to commercialize this stuff and take something from an idea into a business whether that's university research or a startup or you know could be a whole variety of things so who is located in there is it primarily then students doing research or is it primarily independent companies that are in there well so in in the park itself there's so there's a number of buildings so i'm in the atrium and we're a tenant so um and so i run an accelerator called the innovation factory and and we as a tenant are a place where someone who's got an idea or has a business can come and get some support for that. We're government funded, so there's no charge to the entrepreneur themselves, but you know, we can connect them to all kinds of people. Could be the university, could be the college, could be the city, um, could be mentors and all and kinds of things. So we as an organization are probably the broadest in terms of that. But in the in the park itself, I mean across the street you have the McMaster Automotive Resource Center, which is uh, a spot where the university does a ton of research on everything from electric vehicles to transmissions. You know, Dr. Ali Amadi, who runs that aspect of the park and part of McMaster University, he's literally renowned with the electric automotive community as the person to talk to when you want to do research on electric vehicles. So, you know, that's where you get this dichotomy of someone that comes in and wants to start a business. Then across the street, you've got this world renowned, you know, essentially engineer who's helping shape what electric vehicles are going to be like. On the other side of, of, of the atrium where I am, they have the Canadian Materials Lab, which is a uh, NRC-funded uh, National Research Council, so a Canadian federally-funded lab on materials, and that's where they can test materials for everything. From when I saw the tour, and it's a very secure building, so you know when we see the tour on certain open house days, but they were evaluating materials from an explosion to try to determine what happened and if they could do some things. So this it's this great mix of scientists of engineers doing research with, you know, in industry like, you know, automotive industry 
And again, to startups and then some pure research things like, you know, the Canadian longitudinal study on aging that's trying to figure out how do we solve the problems for an aging society? I mean, it sounds overlap, you know. And, yeah. But but it sounds like when you when you're putting these kind of things together, it would be an easy sell to fill the place up and to have everybody want to be around something like that. Clearly, there are more challenges with trying to get people to come in and be part of this. Why why has it not been the easiest possible sell in the world? Well, I think what's getting confused right now is there was a sell to and, and again I'm speaking as an outsider, but from what I understand, there was a sell to bring investors in to build out the rest of the park. And so there's um, one of the factories uh, that's there that's really a shell of a factory. There was um, some plans if you went to MIP site that would show this great 3D rendering of that being a big space. Uh, they bought the spectator building, which needs to be fitted out. So the space as it is, is is full. The spaces that are available, and they just built a new building for Omnio Bio, which is um, um, a, like a bio manufacturing facility. So that building is, has just been created. I don't think there's been trouble filling the spaces that are there and available right now. I think what they needed to do was match up investors filling out the other, whatever it is, 20 acres of, of building space that's there and getting someone to fund that for future development. I think a couple of things happened. That's It's not the greatest time to raise capital, you know, based on what's happening with the markets. So I think the vision of that deal and what it was three years ago is different than what that would have been. But that we're seeing with with our entrepreneurs that intended to raise capital through investors to start their business. It's definitely a harder time. So you know, it feels like McMaster put a pause on that. But the news is that this place is an empty shell. Um, you know, we we certainly think it's lively and activated, and we're tenants there. And, and again, I don't I don't want to suggest that it's an empty shell. I mean, I I I don't believe that. Um, we know that there are people in there. But it, again, it would seem to me that if I am a company that is looking to find bright new ideas and bright new people, that this would be the kind of place you would go. You've got university students who are maybe graduate students working in research. They're the people you're probably going to hire down the road. It would seem that that would be the first place that I would want, if I was an investor, that I would want to go and hang out and spend some time and sort of put a a flag in the ground there. So, but again, you know, some of these investments, someone comes into the park and is there for several years before they raise capital. I mean, we all sort of see the Dragon's Den, you know, Shark Tank version where someone makes a deal and the deal happens and everybody walks away. But if you were to just, you know, sit in the park and wait for a new deal to come through, it's not it's not walking by your desk every two hours. So, you know, the question arises then, does an investor need to be in that building to have access to the deals, the deal flow? We would say at Innovation Factory, you don't. We will call investors and bring them in for pitch viewings and you you guys have been part of our lion's lair competition right. show them early access to some of these things so i think some of it's maybe a bit oversimplified um i think the biggest challenge was how do you fund in this environment expansion of what we've already got uh, of those you know five or six buildings into 20 20 buildings and i think there's a hotel on the books and a bunch of things so you know, again, I don't think you guys were saying it was a shell, but certainly some of the articles I've read almost imply that, I mean, literally, well, actually, people literally called me and said, oh, is it okay? What are you going to do? And I was like, what do you mean? So, well, it sounds like it's closing down. I was like, oh, no, our building's fine. And, and the, the the empty lot across the street might not be a building tomorrow, but our, our building's fine. And from what I understand, pretty much full. So, uh is there yeah, still it's, a, it's it's tough. Is there still a chance? And we got to go. We I wish we had more time, but yep. is there yep. still a chance 
that that initial vision that you're describing could happen? Or, or has reality been different to the point where we say, okay, now let's reframe what our vision of this thing is? Oh, I think, I think it is happening. I think if you look at Enadyme, the electric motor company that was just funded from Ali Amadi's research across the street, so you know, brand new state-of-the-art electric motor that doesn't use permanent magnets, just got funded. I, th- I think it is happening. Again, I think some of the optics of uh, you know 20 more buildings being built isn't or is on pause while well, the university tries to figure out what the next step is. But you know anybody that wants to come and see what's going on and pop by the innovation factory, we're happy to show you that it's happening right now. We've seen our growth from seeing 400 clients a year to I think we just saw 600 in the last sign period. So we literally increased by 50% in terms of the number of entrepreneurs coming through our door. So, you know, Hamilton should know it's on, it's on fire right now. And, um, you know, don't let, don't let a real estate deal make you think otherwise. Uh, that is Dave Carter. He is executive director of Innovation Factory. Dave, thanks for jumping in and doing this today. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, that was a lot of fun. You take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably hear often people complain about their bank, A, that it doesn't pay them any interest, common complaint. Uh, there may be other things that they mention, but Abacus has done some polling of Canadians. And to my surprise, I think most people, 72%, say not only do they trust their financial institutions, but they are satisfied with their personal banking institution. I thought this would be something far, far lower. And the, the follow-up to this is about what other options there are. Uh, and doesn't look so good for all of those. I want to bring in uh, e, Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Dr. Lee, thank you for this today. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Um, I'm glad to be talking about this because I'm a former banker uh, from many years ago. And no, I do not consult the banks. No, I do not for those people who think I'm in the pocket of the banks. <laughs> I have no investments whatsoever in a bank other than I am a customer of a bank, have been for forty over 40 years in Canada, in this country. I have no financial relationship other than I worked there in the 70s and early 80s, but I've been following this issue of open banking very closely. And I've testified many, many times before the House of Commons Finance Committee about uh, mortgage financing and the big bank dominance in Canada and and so forth. So I, I, uh, I look forward to our talk. Well, before we get to the open banking part, are you then surprised considering how often I hear people complain about banks? Oh, they make yeah. so much money. Oh, they don't pay me interest. Oh, this and that. That yeah. when it comes right down to it, the vast majority of people say they're actually pretty satisfied with their bank. They are, and I know that to be true. I've seen a poll after poll over literally 30, 40 years. I worked in a bank. I saw it up close and personal. I was quite frankly surprised that that latest poll by Abacus that showed 75% of Canadians are, are very happy with their bank. Quite frankly, I thought would have thought it was going to be more like 90% uh, because Canadians have a love-hate relationship with the bank. On the one hand, this is my take. This is my, I don't think it's unique. I don't think it's, but this is my take on this. Canadians trust the Canadian banks. They know if there's anything they know in this world, they know that the big five are never going to go bankrupt. Uh, Maybe they don't know it analytically, intellectually, rationally, macroeconomically, but they just know they'll be there. My answer is, is if a Canadian bank went down, well, that means the Canadian economy is going down because they're too big to fail. The four, five Canadian banks have four 
trillion, over four trillion in assets, which is way larger than the totality of the Canadian economy. Ain't going to happen. At the same time, Canadians have this, I don't know what the word is. Um, they don't like the fact they're so big and they're so powerful and they're so dominant. So we have a love-hate relationship. We don't want our bank to fail. We don't like American, the failures that we see in the bank, in the American system all the time. You know, 200 bank failures a year, and people say, oh, my God, how can that happen? Because nobody wants the bank to fail, and it's just terrifying. It's a scary thought. On the other hand, it, it, that's why I said it's love-hate. It, 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 it's really it's a, it's a strange relationship uh, because we hate them for the same reason we love them. Yeah. We yeah. love them because they're big, big, strong, and stable. Why do we hate them? Because they're very big and powerful and strong, <laughs> the same thing that makes them stable. This is a, it, and I, I'm saying this as someone who's lived here all my life, and I've dealt with Canadians, and I talk about it in classes each year for 35 years, and Canadians have truly a love-hate relationship with the banks. And that's why we won't allow foreign banks to come into Canada, and that's why Paul Martin, 10 years ago, I think it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, banned foreign banks from coming in because he, they had the polling data, and they know the Canadians do not want foreign banks to come in here that's going to introduce risk to the system. Well, so we have this strange relationship with the banks in Canada. One of the alternatives then, because not everyone, it wasn't 100% who were supporting the banks. So one of the alternatives right. is this idea of open banking. Now, uh, before yeah. people who are listening say, oh, I'm an idiot because I don't know what this is, take heart. Most Canadians don't know what open banking is. So right. if you're listening right. and you are puzzled, you are far from alone. The vast majority right. of Canadians right. are unaware. Dr. Lee, what is open banking? Right. And I don't want anyone to be mystified. I keep telling my students, don't let economists or technology people mystify you with techno jargon and baffle gab. Okay. Business is not complicated. It isn't. Banking is not complicated. I'm not saying that there aren't technical laws and rules and regulations, but the concept, the business model is not complicated. Banks bring money in on deposit, and then they relend it back out to you, those of you who want to borrow money. That is how banks work. They take money in on deposit, and they pay low rates of interest, and they lend it back out at higher rates of interest. You know, buy low, sell high, you know, that's the, that's the business model. Now to open banking, we all know that, you know, if you have some Canadians have bank accounts with more than one bank. Okay. So you, and there's only five in Canada really to be practical, you know, there's the Scotia bank and the BMO and the CIBC and the TD and so forth. Okay. So you've got money in, well, look, let's just name names. You got money in the TD and you maybe have some uh, checking account there maybe a savings account, maybe uh, a GIC. Uh, and then you've got some money over at the B at the Scotia bank. Well, the only way you can go from one bank to the other bank is to close the one off your online, close the account, and then go and open up the other bank account. For those of you who aren't doing online banking or still in the physical world, the only way you can find out what's in the one branch is to leave if you're physically, physically in the TD Bank. You've got to walk out the front door and walk down the street to the Scotia Bank. There are huge barriers that banks don't share data on our bank account. Properly so. I don't want them. I don't want Scotiabank to be telling TD what I've got at Scotiabank, okay? Open banking is going to turn that upside down using so-called APIs. Let's just call them apps. Everybody knows what an app is. Well, the app is going to, with your approval, so there's no skullduggery here. I'm never going to grant such an approval, by the way. I, Ian Lee, nine years in banking, I am not going to grant any API the approval to say, oh, yes, you can go get my financial information from Scotiabank and TD Bank and put it on a nice screen side by side. 
That's open banking. They're going to get your data, aggregated data, not approval to spend your money. They're not approving to debit your accounts. They're just going to be able to go in and collect, scrape your account, collect the data in there, how much you have in your checking, how much in your savings. And then they can put it into a nice little screen that shows putting side by side the two banks. Everybody says, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that efficient? Really? Really? So you want some API app. You don't even have a clue who they are. Podunkville programmer and God knows where. Maybe, I don't know, they're in Bangladesh. Maybe they're in northern Quebec. I don't know where they are. We know nothing about these little app programmers. Okay? I don't know how stable they are. I don't know how legitimate they are. And they're asking me to give them the approval in writing to go and get my data about my money from my bank accounts and then put them in a third-party app on my cell phone. Are you dreaming? Now, maybe I'm just old, okay? But I'm not going to do that. I can figure out what's in bank account A versus bank account B because I can physically walk to the two banks. I actually don't do that. I go online. I close one bank account. You can open up two windows. If you're in Microsoft, Windows, you just open up two separate windows. So you have Scotiabank open in one window, TD open in the other. I don't need an app to go pull that data. I don't want third-party strangers who I know nothing about getting access to my money. And, and, and that's open banking. I have stated it simply, and of course, the app developers will all say, oh, no, 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 he's just paranoid, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't give, I don't write down my PIN Anywhere, not anywhere, not on a piece of paper, not in my Outlook account. I don't share it with anybody. I mean, nobody on planet Earth. So why am I going to share that data with an absolute faceless stranger? Now, they're saying, oh, because of the convenience. Well, I am not so idiotic or lazy or incompetent that I can't compare what's in two different bank accounts by simply opening up two separate windows. But that's the essence of open banking. And and you know what, when you said maybe you're just old, uh, I don't think it's just you. If you look at the polling, clearly those who are a little bit older are far less eager to do this and those who are much younger are far more willing to do this and I suspect that that means that and we got to run unfortunately I suspect that means that down the road this will become more and more and more common and maybe then people like us will uh, at some point decide that we're going to do it too I'm not sure but um, there's there's the explanation so I appreciate you doing this now people listening have an idea because they're going to hear it you are going to hear about open banking it is going to be a discussion point. Wanted uh, everyone to at least and know what we're talking voluntary. about. So everybody understands, and they won't force you to to go with these third party apps. You will have to sign an agreement saying yes, I will share my data. And if you want to share your data with complete strangers, programmers of third party apps, go to town. Fill your Do- Dr. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. As always, thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So I'm reading something in the spec in the Toronto Star today. And boy, did it catch my eye because it's something that sounds on its face like it is over the top. Like it's a hyperbole, like it's exaggeration. And then the more I thought about this, the more I thought I'm not sure that it is. Headline, smartphones are the new cigarettes. We may look back at our collective addiction in disbelief. The idea basically being 
uh, once upon a time, everybody smoked cigarettes. And now years later, we wonder what people were doing back then. Is that what's going to happen 20, 30 years from now that when people look back at photos of us probably taken on our smartphone, that they will say, really, they, they did nothing without having their smartphone in their hand. They couldn't go to the beach. They couldn't have a family get together. They couldn't go to the toilet without their smartphone in their hand. What was wrong with these people? Is it really the new cigarette? Dr. Peter Beeling is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster and a psychologist at St. Joseph's Hospital joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this today. Yeah, no problem. Uh, So what do you think? Are we at the point where smartphones have become... Maybe they're not going to blacken our lungs like cigarettes do, but are they as addictive as cigarettes once were or still are? Yeah, uh, you've put your finger on it. That was my problem with the analogy as well. It, it, uh, where's the lung cancer that comes from, from my iPhone? Um, so it, it's not a perfect analogy, but it, but it is very thought-provoking and it makes you think. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, work with a whole group of psychotherapists and we threw this around a bit at lunch. And... Um, an interesting conversation because we're all um, talking about it in therapy with our clients. Um, at, at the very least, it's an incredibly ambivalent relationship that we have with, with our phones, right? On the one hand, I'm talking to you through my phone. Yes. Um, I was looking at Instagram Reels earlier. Uh, I feel like it's my window on the world. Um, but um, if somebody, you know, takes my phone away from me for even a moment, I don't like it. And you know, that, that's an important thing for me to pay attention to. And you said, where's the blacking, blackened lungs of this? However, I would argue that maybe, and I had to think about this one a little for the same question, how many, especially young people, although maybe not all young people, how many young people, teenagers, even younger than teenagers are now dealing with mental health issues or other things like this because of social media or other things that are tied into those phones? It, it, it definitely does seem like a culprit in some of the increasing rates of, of certain kinds of um, problems that, that, that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like one of the things that I could, I could bottle in terms of, you know, therapy advice is that uh, the IRL in real life is also incredibly important in terms of, you know, having friends that are real life, not just friends that you chat with or Snapchat with and so on. So I feel like, constantly have to be a sort of a counterweight to to not 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 even phone and I, I i know what the author was saying and what you were saying that one day it will look funny that we were all holding these things while we were looking at the grand canyon but <laughs> it's true. um but but i also think like let's be real i think 30 years from now we won't need to be holding these phones because they'll be sort of integrated into the sunglasses that we're wearing or the the, the chip that we've all recently got implanted because we wanted one because <laughs> everyone else had one. Yeah. And so. I just saw something the other day and I can't remember what it was for. It was a concert or a, a, a sporting event or something. And it was a photo of the people and literally every person was holding up their phone instead of watching the event and experiencing and living the event. They were all capturing it for the future, I guess, of some kind. So they could then say they were there or put it on Instagram, which 
really to me that there are a lot of things that I hate about smartphones, but one of them is, and you touched on it, the present year, it has almost made it so you're unable to live in the present because you're required to show that you were there and have proof and capture something as opposed to just saying, Hey, you know what? This was a great event. I looked at the Grand Canyon and I was right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know a guy who, uh, when he sees people taking photos like that, yells out the window of his car, uh, you have no followers, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, it isn't the nicest thing to do, but, um, but, but yeah, there's a part of me that kind of, uh, understands that, you know, there's, there's got to be, there's got to be a balance here. Um, yeah. What is, uh, maybe you can explain what addiction is because I mean, we throw that word around a lot. I'm addicted to this. I'm addicted to coffee. I'm addicted to my smartphone in a medical psychiatric, psychological, whatever it is term, what characterizes addiction? So it's, it's, it's a thing that, um, firstly, we'd have to establish that it's causing some harm. It's interfering in some way in your life. It's, it, it's keeping you from doing things, uh, that you'd like to do or, or makes you do things that you don't want to be doing. That's, that's, that's one big thing. Uh, but the reason we're a little bit stuck with uh, things like drugs and alcohol is because the next two things are tolerance and withdrawal. So tolerance means is that you, know, you basically need more and more of it to get the same effect. Like um, you know, the first cup of coffee you ever had was probably the best cup of coffee you ever had because you really felt it. And now it takes a couple of tinnies to get to that same spot, right? That's, that's one sign of a developing addiction. And then withdrawal is that when you do not have access to that substance, that your body reacts in such a way to kind of bring you back, right? You get some uncomfortableness. Uh, and uh, since the author used cigarettes, nicotine is an amazingly addictive drug in, in that sense, is that you, you really, really crave it. And if you haven't had a cigarette in a while, you, you really need one. And people may not remember this, but, you know, there was this, the last cigarette before you go to bed and the first cigarette when you wake up and that kind of sets you to, to rights. It's almost like you're balanced again. You feel like your normal self. That's, that's real old fashioned addiction, but we are now talking about addiction, say to gambling, right? Because you can show a lot of those similar kinds of things. You need to bet larger, uh, to get, to get the high, right? And when you're not able to do it, you feel frustrated and you feel angry and then you're happy again when you do get to do it, if only briefly. And those are what we usually call those, what, endorphin hits that you're getting those when, when you're gambling or when you get the ding on your phone. Is, can that be considered, can endorphins be a legitimate addiction? Well, everything is ultimately happening in the brain at the neuronal level. So, uh, yes, you can. So the kind of, a, you know, people also talk about dopamine hits. Dopamine. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. Thank yeah, you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Same kind of like you, you, you get this sort of brief, you know, good, satisfying feeling. Uh, and then, you know, that's, that's it. You scroll to where you're going to scroll, you put it down and then it nags at you again, that, that maybe there's something there. Um, you know, as, as a real nerd, I guess, in this area, you think about it as um, kind of uncertain racial reinforcement, right? You look and sometimes it, it doesn't pay off, but then you see something that you're looking for, it pays off. And so that keeps you at it. It's exactly the same thing that brings people back to slot machines, which on their face don't initially make any sense because most of the spins you're losing. 
but every once in a while you hit and that really really keeps 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 you going but there is something i think uh i mean i hate to admit this but i've experienced it you've probably experienced when you do get a ding on your phone and it's almost become Pavlovian, that you you do have a momentary high or I don't even know if it's a high, what the feeling that you immediately feel the need that you must go and check. If you're if you're in the middle of watching your wife give birth and you get a ding on your phone, most people will feel a compulsion to go and look at their phone at that moment, even though they know this is entirely unimportant. There's something about that. Yeah, that's that's unfortunately a little bit of a curse of how we're how we're wired biologically. So yeah, you, you look down and you'll see it's a it's a scam offering you an airline ticket, and what a waste of time that was. But you'll still um, check. You'll still check. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, how do how do you know it was a scam? Because you looked, right? So it, it it it's something that I think we just have to try to keep in balance because we're not going to shed technology. Um, like it's a, it's a little bit too late to, you know, I was thinking about a reader just sort of reading that this morning and saying, okay, that's it. Uh, I'm dropped my phone in the drink. Well, how could you get around banking or uh, signing up for things? I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's our conduit to, to the world. Um, but, and, and there, there are good things, right? I, I, I'm sure you do too. I get beautiful recipes through the internet essentially, right? But through my phone, um, I'm apprised of sports scores that I care about. You know, there's, there there are upsides. I think I think we've we've got to remember. I mean, that's how we got here, right? These companies engineered enough goodness, so to speak, that that we felt in the phone, and then before we knew it, we were glancing at it while our wife gives birth, and that's yeah. not where we want to be. Uh, w- one of the the things about whether we use the word addiction or just, I don't know what the step down from addiction would be, but, but we're still feeling kind of that same thing. There have been a lot of people saying, you know, we should ban phones from classrooms. Kids should not have their phones in classrooms. And I tend to agree with that kind of thing. I think they're hugely distracting. The follow-up question, though, is if we have this addiction or whatever word you want to use, and our phone, as you mentioned a moment ago, is not near you and you're feeling anxious. If we have all the kids with their phone 20 feet away in a box, is that going to make them pay any more attention to what's going on in class? Or are they just going to be thinking about how I wish they could get my hands on my phone? No, I, I, think, I, think, that would be, I think that would be effective. I think there are times when you can say, look, let's, um, let's, let's not have phones present for something. Uh, I, I think that will lead to, to greater focus. But of course, you know, you and I know that we're human beings and people have differences of opinion. Some parents are going to say, look, we use a family group chat and uh, I'm checking on my kid. You know, did you make it to school? So if, if they can't respond, you know, I'll be in the dark. So that's not what I want. And other people would say, um, hey, in the middle of, you know, some lecture about Canadian history, my daughter wants to Google something. She wants to like link out from the class and explore this topic on Wikipedia, right? So for me, it's, 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 it can be hard to think of ways that we can prevent the harms without also preventing some of the things that is good about this uh, technology. But I, I think I just want people to be thoughtful about this, right? And to be able to, at some points, um, you know, plug in the phone and 
do not disturb and, and forget it for a bit. The one big difference, I think, and you tell, you're the expert, you tell me if I'm wrong on this one. The one big difference I would think between this and a more traditional addiction, alcohol or cigarettes or drugs or whatever, we were just, my wife and I were just recently away for a week and for the most part, the phone was put away. And if it's not near you and you're doing something else, I found any way that I could then not be thinking about the phone and what was on it. I'm not sure that if I was a cigarette smoker that I would be able to simply step away for a week and not think about cigarettes like that. I, I think there is a difference. I, yeah, I, I would agree. And there would be some people who would draw a line around, as you were saying, you know, what's that, what's that level down where we know it's not great, but it's not sort of a, at a biochemical level an addiction. So to me, the phone falls kind of in this in-between space, you know, because of the reason you just said. Do you think, though, that there is something anatomical or biological that happens with phones as you use them more and more and become addicted? Do, Do you think that the dopamine or whatever else, do you think that's real? Yeah, there's no, there's no question because, because everything that we think, feel, is happening at a biochemical level. So it's a matter of degrees there as well, right? That, that look, here's something that we just can't make up. Um, you know, the brain gets so used to the chemistry being a certain way because of things like alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, of course, a lot of the harder drugs. And then with phones and other things, I think that if we had sufficient resolution, we could see this happening at the, at, at the anatomical level. So, in the end, everything has to be biological because there's nothing going on in our brain besides very complicated electrical, chemical, and sort of anatomical structural activity. There's another part of this, which is, I again, I think, um, cigarettes, you become addicted and then they just stay there. We're, as users of smartphones, we are also, I think, battling against programmers who's, who are trying, whose job it is to keep changing whatever it is to make sure that we are on our phone all the time. We're, we're, we're not just facing an, an, in, an, an inanimate object. There are people who are working very vigorously to make sure that we remain, quote, quote, addicted. A hundred percent. And to some extent, they're people. But we also know that now it's, it's if you will, AI that's, that's, that's doing that, that's analyzing masses of data to see what presentation of what things keeps us swiping, scrolling, et cetera. Individually. I mean, it's looking at us individually to find our weakness for lack of a better word to do that. Uh, yes. Yes. Which, which a lot of those companies would reframe as, you know, catering to our customers' tastes. And so there are people who I think, and again, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, there are people who are more susceptible to addiction, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes. I don't know that everybody who drinks becomes an alcoholic. In fact, I know they don't. Some do though. With this, if you've got an alcohol manufacturer who's designing an alcohol every time you drink to make sure that it becomes something you don't want to put down, that's double the challenge then if you're, if you're, if you've got a weakness that way. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, you have to, you have to know yourself. And I think we have to look out, for example, for our, for our kids and preteens and teens in terms of, you know, limiting screen time, if, which is not going to be easy, but, um, you know, I think 
I think we all, our brains need need a rest from this. And and there are people who are really worried about, uh, of course, you, you know now that there are, there's a generation that grew up only with the iPad. They don't remember a time, for yes. example, um, when that wasn't sort of present in, in their lives. Um, and yes, you can, you can it's, it's, I think it's right to be worried. Uh, before I let you go, so, I mean, you're a psychologist, uh, you work in psychiatry. Do you expect, or are we already there, a time when parents might be bringing their kids in to get help to deal with this kind of thing? Uh, I think I think we're already there in the sense that, um, you know, parents probably bring in their kids in the end because they really see them struggling with something that's sort of right before their eyes. But I don't know that it's always appreciated that when we track back on the roots, like where did this come from? How did it start? Uh, often it's some kind of social media uh, that, that, that played a significant role. Right. And, and you wonder how would we still be here if it wasn't for this like social comparison that, that young people were making or the fact that, um, you know, this point's been made many times, but, uh, it used to be that you know if if you had a problem in the schoolyard, um, y- you had to wait till the next day to to continue that conversation. Now those conversations just don't stop. You know they just continue. So if you're a parent, would you be telling your kid well, as soon as you get home, put your phone in a box somewhere and leave it alone till morning, or is that just not realistic? I don't think that's realistic. I, I think you have to let your kids choose uh, some amount of of screen time. Um, it's, I think it's would place an incredible burden on a parent, uh, to say, you know, we just don't use phones at, at home because your kids are going to confront you with, well, yeah, look what everybody else is doing. Right. So I, I think it's hard to, to not stay a little bit in step with what, 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 what other people are doing. But I think you can say, uh, things like, look, um, when we're, uh, you know, we're going on a ski holiday and when we're on the ski hill, um, let's just let's just be together and ski rather than take photos every, every five seconds. Um, you know, that, that kind of argument to me also goes to, uh, there are times when it's, it's safer actually to concentrate on what the heck you're doing, you know, rather than, uh, than hitting the gram about it. It's, uh, it's interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see. I, I suspect you may well be right with something you said 10 minutes or so ago about how down the road, we may just have a different way of doing this. We won't all have a phone in our hand, but it, it, it just, it seems hard to believe that Pandora's box can be closed again. And this technology is just going to be gone away. Un- unless, unless the next generation looks at mom and dad and goes, you people are idiots. What are you doing with this phone all the time? And decides they don't want to do this. But I find that very hard to believe. Uh, you know, I, I have teens. I think what's happening is they're saying you're an idiot but I'm looking at a different part of the internet compared to you. So that's why you do it. They're not throwing out their phones. They're just using them differently than we do. Uh, Dr. Peter Beiling, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster and a psychologist at St. Joseph's Hospital. Really appreciate this discussion. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.